All right, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1? If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, it should be on page 1, very beginning of the book. We, uh, like I said, started last week a sermon series through the book of Genesis. And Genesis is the uh, first book of the Bible, and so it lays out the foundation of the whole story that is to follow And like all good story beginnings, um, this story answers a lot of the questions that you and I have when we think about life. You know, we we ask questions like, who is God, or what is man, or what is the purpose of life? Why is the world so broken? And those are just some of the questions that this book answers for us. And this morning, we're looking at one of those questions, which is, what does it mean for us to work? Uh, We do this We work, whether you're in a job or at home or in school, we work so much of our lives. And so we're going to come to this text and ask the question, what does it mean for us to work? Why do we have to work? Why is work part of this story? So let's read Genesis 1, 28 through chapter 2, verse 15. This is right after God has created man in his image. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and There was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight And good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevelah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now through your spirit that it would lead us to understand the purpose of work that you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1981, a Canadian rock band called Loverboy released a single, a hit. It was so popular. So popular, in fact, uh, that even today, it's, it's within the top 100 songs of the 1980s. And it's remained so popular, maybe because the lyrics are catchy, maybe because the melody is fun, but I think it is so popular, it's, it's past the test of time because this song resonates so deeply with humanity. And this is the song. Everybody's working for the weekend. I, I can't sing it. Everyone knows that song, right? <laughs> Sorry. Everybody's working for the weekend. We love that song. Listen to how Paul Dean, the guitarist who came up with the song, describes how it came to him. He says that he was walking down uh, in his town close to where he was living at the time, and he said it was a Wednesday afternoon, a beautiful afternoon, maybe a day like today. And he said he was walking in what was usually a heavily populated area, but it was just deserted. Everybody was at work. And as a musician, I'm out here doing all of my work, looking for inspiration. So I keep walking, and I come to the beach where I expected to find people, and yet no one was there. Everyone was inside working. Everybody was working for the weekend. That's our lives, isn't it? We work, and we work, and we work, and we work. We long for a break. We're all working for the weekend, whether we're going to our workplace or we're working from home, whether we're making lunch for kids or overseeing a factory line, whether we're on the phone all day or on our feet all day, we are working. What are we working for? What are you working for? What do you spend so many of your waking hours every week doing? What are you working for? This morning, I want us to see that Genesis shows us what we ought to be working for. That this passage, the foundation of the story of life, teaches us that we ought to be working for the glory of God. Yet, so many of us are just working for the weekend. In this passage, we're going to see the goodness of work, the beauty of work, the corruption of work, and the work that can lead us to glory. So if you want to follow along, take notes, that's where we're headed. The goodness of work, the beauty of work, the corruption of work, and the work that leads to glory first. Let's look at the goodness of work. In verse 28, right at the beginning, we see that right after God made man and woman, he told us to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the land. That is work. To have dominion, to exercise authority over this world is to work, to take the things of this world and put them together to create something new. That is what it means to have dominion over the world. And God says, 
God says, do it, work. Take the elements of the world, construct something new out of them. What I want you to see, that this command to work, I mean, it's good in itself, and we need to see that this command is given to before humans rebel against God. This command to work in the world is given before the order of the world falls apart when sin rushes in. This command to work is given to us before things go. Work is part of the goodness of creation. It is good for us to work. Work gives us something to do with our bodies and our minds. It gives us something to achieve and to work toward in this world. It typically puts us in contact with other people to have social interactions with other human beings. We typically work on projects together, working to build something new. Work produces something that benefits us world. We earn wages when we work so that we can take care of ourselves and those that we love. Work is a good thing. We know that it's not good not to work. Back in 2015, um, there was an Atlantic article that was published by journalist Derek Thompson. And this article he wrote about Youngstown, so he actually traveled to Youngstown and spent many months researching for this article. And he, he reported on the ramifications that, that sort of exploded in this city after a single event back in the 70s. See, for most of the 20th century, Youngstown, I don't know if you ever visited today, but for most of the 20th century, Youngstown was this growing and vibrant community. I mean, it was actually a model city across the whole nation. I mean, most cities look to Youngstown and say, what are they doing right? Look, because in Youngstown, the media in the nations, the percentage of ownership in was greater. Things were happening largely because of the steel mills and the production that came from the steel industry that was so popular in Youngstown. After World War II and after changes in our economy and changes in our industry, in 1977, the largest employer in Youngstown, Youngstown and two doors. And within five years, over 50,000 residents in Youngstown lost their job. The city, over those years, lost $1.3 billion in economic revenue. It plunged the city into economic crisis. But more than that, Derek found out, were a part of the culture. He says that this city plunged into what is called a regional depression were people experiencing economic disruption, but the city itself experienced psychological and cultural breakdown. Depression, spousal abuse, suicide, all became much more prevalent. The mental health center in the city actually tripled their caseloads in those first 10 years after it shut down. 
Even after 44 years, that city has not been able to regain the footing that it once had. A professor of labor studies actually at Youngstown State University said that Youngstown's story is the story of America because it shows us that when their jobs go away, the cultural cohesion of a place is destroyed. In other words, work is good because when work is taken away, the fabric of creation comes unraveled. Culture breaks down. Lives are destroyed. Work is good. And we know a little bit about that. Like when this pandemic began, when everything shut down, I mean, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs across this country. Everything got put on hold. And so many have yet to return to that state. And what did we see happen over those first several months? Depression increased. Abuse at home increased. Suicide increased. The psychological and cultural cohesion of our country fell apart. Because work is good. And when it's taken away, our lives fall apart. That's the first thing we have to see in this passage, that work is good. It is good for us to have something to do. It is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. But work is not only good because God told us to do it and created us that way. It is good because work creates beauty. There is a beauty to work. I mentioned just before that work is essentially taking the different parts of the world, the natural resources, and fixing them together in such a way that we produce something new, something beautiful. This is fundamentally what work is supposed to be. This is what God did when he worked in creation. Remember last week we talked about how in the beginning the world was formless and void. And what did God do? He pulled things together and said, now there's beauty. He created form. He created order. He created beauty. That is what it means to work, to create something beautiful in this world. And we see in verse 5 of chapter 2, Moses, who's writing this story, tells us that there are two reasons why no bush of the field has grown. The first is that the Lord hadn't yet made it rain in the field yet, but the second is important for us this morning. Moses said it's because there was no man in the garden yet to work it. There was no one there to take the elements of the world and put it together to create something beautiful. That's why work is so important. It's because it creates something beautiful. When we do work, we are producing something beautiful. But it's not always easy to see how your work creates something beautiful. Especially when it's hard or mundane. Especially if you don't see how your work impacts anyone else. But all honest work is beautiful. Because it is an extension of this creation process. Maybe you're a student. And work for you looks like learning a new skill, applying techniques, studying and writing papers. Why do you do that? 
so that when you have a job, you know how to take the things of the world and make something beautiful. Students are doing something beautiful. Maybe your work is taking the raw materials of the world and fashioning them together to create a part for a medical device that's going to go into a hospital and it's going to help someone be healed of their disease. That is creating something beautiful. Maybe your work is preparing food or doing laundry or getting your hands messy playing Play-Doh with little kids, maybe your own, maybe others, so that you can help them grow and learn. That is something beautiful. Maybe you are a manager and you oversee other people. You direct processes. You, you oversee projects and you work to create things more efficient and successful, less expensive for your company. That is something beautiful. Every honest work is taking the things of this world and making something beautiful for other people. Our work creates something beautiful because it is creating something that reflects the beauty of God. When we work to make someone else's life a little bit easier, a little bit better, we are doing something that God is all about. It might look like working for justice. It might look like advocating for someone who doesn't have a voice for themselves. It might look like Developing a new process that's faster, better for the company, whatever it is, counseling, healthcare, engineering, art, parenting, security, finance, construction. Every one of these jobs has the potential to bring God's glory and beauty into this world. Your work can bring something beautiful into this world. We might not always feel it. We might not always see how our mundane in and out work contributes to this beauty but it's true because it's part of who God is and part of who he made us to be J.R.R. Tolkien the author of uh, the Lord of the Rings books in the middle of him finishing those stories actually took a break and he wrote a short story called Leaf by Niggle it's a funny title but that's what it's called Leaf by Niggle and in this short story, he talks about this relationship between our work and the eternal beauty that it displays. This is how the story goes. There was an artist named Niggle. And this artist, Niggle, he loved to paint nature. He loved to paint beautiful landscapes. And one morning he woke up with this vision, a dream that he had of this gorgeous landscape, the most beautiful scene he had ever seen. And right in the middle of this landscape, there was a tree. And on this tree, it was just filled with beautiful leaves. And he said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to paint that landscape. So he cleared out his garage and he set up the largest canvas that he could and he got to work. And he started right there in the middle on the tree with one leaf. And he kept on painting that leaf. And days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. He could not get past painting that leaf because Nigel was obsessed over it. He was a perfectionist. He wanted to get every little corner right and every shade right. And so after months and years, he looked back at his beautiful landscape and all he saw was the leaf. 
And the story continues. He actually gets taken against his will to go on a long journey to a far-off country. And we're supposed to see that as him passing away and going into the afterlife. And after many years spent in this far-off country, after toiling, he turns around one day. And there, standing before him, is the tree filled with leaves from his vision. Behind the tree, there was the stream and the snow-capped mountains, and he realized all of a sudden, this is the thing that he was longing for. This is the thing he was working for day in and day out. Time after time, he was trying to paint the beauty of this eternal thing. Tim Keller shares this story and then comments on it like this. He says, once or twice in our lives, we may feel like we have finally been able to paint a leaf Whatever your work, you need to know this. There really is a tree. There really is a tree. Whatever it is that you're seeking to do with your work, maybe you're trying to work for a city of justice and peace, a world of brilliance and beauty, a world of order and healing, you have to know that there is a tree. There is a God. There is a future healed world that he will bring about, and your work is showing, in part, that world to others. Your work will only be partially successful, even on your best days, in bringing about that world here. But inevitably, that whole tree that you seek, that beauty and harmony, justice and comfort, joy and community, it will come to fruition. Friends, the beauty of our work is that we have this wonderful opportunity to create something truly beautiful, to create something that reflects the glory of God to those around us. So why is that so hard to do? Like, why is it so difficult for us to actually do that good and beautiful work? Well, we all know it's because our work has been corrupted. Like this idea of work has been corrupted. And we know that. Like overworking is an epidemic. There's something I learned this week called mandatory overtime. That is the corruption of work. People no longer have a work-rest balance. Those lines are so blurred. How many of you have ever looked at your work email late one night or on the weekends? How many of you find it hard to just get out of your head? You're just thinking about work when you're with your family or friends. Work is corrupted. I I met a guy a couple years ago who just started at Rocket Mortgage downtown, and he told me that within his hiring class, they told them that within six months, they needed to reduce that hiring class by half. And so for those six months, everyone was just striving to out-compete their neighbor. Work is corrupted because we strive for something. We're competing against people for something. My my brother-in-law works at a tech startup in New York, and we visited his office once, and they actually have TV monitors that have a ranking of each employee on a list of one to, I don't know, 300 
and your points of how many sales calls you've made, how many packages you've sold, how many reports you've filed. You get points and you are ranked. And so every day, all day long, you are trying to outcompete your neighbors. Work has been corrupted. The design for what we were supposed to do has been corrupted. Work no longer exists to bring God glory. We have changed it and exchanged it, and now we work for our glory. Work was designed to give God glory, but now we work for ourselves. This is the corruption of work. We were supposed to take the created world and make something beautiful for God, and now we abuse it and make it for ourselves. We try to create an identity for ourselves. We try to prop ourselves up to seek those promotions, that level, that status, that desire for something great from our work. Derek Thompson, the guy who wrote about Youngstown, actually just two years ago wrote another article about the rise of something he calls workism. And workism is this belief that work isn't just about necessary economic production, but now it's become the centerpiece of one's identity and life. Everything now revolves around you working. At my brother-in-law's they actually made happy hour every Friday in their office, and they've got rooms for people to go and take a rest and a nap. They've got a gym where people can work out and locker rooms for you to change. Everything that you can imagine is there. There's a room for ping pong. They're designing it so that your whole life revolves around work. Work has been corrupted. It is no longer about glorifying God. It is about glorifying yourself. This is not God's original design. We see in verse 15, God's design for work was for us to be in the garden to do what God told us to do. It says that God placed us there to do two things, to work it and to keep it. Why? So that it would grow and glorify God. But we've exchanged that and now work for ourselves. This phrase, to work it and to keep it. It's interesting that our translators translate it like that. Because every other time in the Old Testament, when those two words in Hebrew are put together, it doesn't mean to work it and keep it. The other times in the Old Testament when these words are put together, it's always in the context of the temple. The priests are put in the temple to work it and keep it. And everywhere else, it is translated to worship and obey, to serve God and obey. Work's original design for us was that we would use our hands, use the things of this world to serve God and obey God. But we've exchanged that. Now we serve ourselves. We obey ourselves. This is the corruption of work. How do we get out? How do we get ourselves free from this corruption? How are we able to get out of this demand that has been put upon us to work for ourselves? Well, at the beginning of the pandemic, I mentioned thousands of people lost their jobs. Economists 
economists and sociologists have noticed a trend in light of that reversal. They've noticed a trend taking place in regard to our collective attitude towards work. With people working from home and having more flexible schedules and realizing the the need for social interaction and reprioritizing how work fits into our lives, economists are saying that this is called the Great Reset. We've had the Great Depression and the Great Recession. Now we're going through the Great Reset. And the, uh, the World Economic Forum founder said this, that we are now in this rare but narrow window of opportunity where we can reflect, reimagine, and reset our world as it pertains to work. We need a great reset. We need something to reimagine the role of work in our lives so that we no longer work for ourselves, but work for the glory of God. How do we do that? How do we do that? We have to see the work that leads to glory. We have to see what kind of work actually leads us to that glory. And we see in this passage, the work that leads to glory is not our work, but it is the finished work of God. We see three times at the beginning of chapter two, in verses two and three, we see that God finished his work. Six days he worked, and then on the seventh, he rested because he was finished with his work. He sat down. He looked at what he had done, and he said, this is good. Now I'm done. I'm resting. I've finished the work. It is the finished work of God that leads us to glory. It's the finished work of God that leads us to be able to be free from these demands of working for ourselves. This work that God finished here, it reminds us not only of creation, but of the finished work of the Son of God, Jesus. The the author of Hebrews relates these two together, that when God finished his work, it was the same thing as Jesus finishing his work. And what was the work that Jesus came to do? The work of redemption. The Bible likes to talk about Jesus being a prophet, priest, and king. And if we focus on the idea of Jesus being a priest, I think we'll see how this creation story connects to Jesus and to ourselves. Remember, God put Adam and Eve in the garden as priests to work it, to keep it, to worship and obey. And what does a priest do? What does a priest do? A priest is a mediator between God and God's people. A priest takes a sacrifice from God's people and brings it into the presence of God and offers it as a sacrifice and takes the blood of that offering to purify God's people, to make them holy, to make them righteous, to give them a status that they did not work for, they could not earn. The blood of these sacrifices cleanses them. It makes them holy and sanctified. It tells them that they're precious, that they're loved, they're forgiven. That is the work of a priest. But these priests, all throughout the Old Testament, they just had to keep working and work and work and work. They were on their feet every day, all day long, every week, every month, every year. Why? Our sinfulness, our, our, our corruption, 
is so bad. We are always in need of a priest. We are always in need of a mediator. We are always in need of an advocate who can go before us and pledge our case, who can defend us, who can cover us and make us clean. Human sinfulness is great job security for priests. There's always a need for a savior. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is a greater priest than even the ones of the Old Testament. Why is he greater? He offered up a perfect sacrifice in himself. He offered up a perfect, spotless sacrifice for all time. His perfect life was that spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. He offered himself up on the cross. His blood poured out that purifies our souls. His blood sanctifies us for all time. It sets us apart as holy. It gives us a status that we could not earn ourselves, that we are righteous before the Father. That's what our assurance of forgiveness reminds us of this morning, that Christ offered himself once for all in our place. And what did he do when he was done? He sat down. He kicked his feet up. And he said, my work is done. Remember what Jesus cried out on the cross? It is finished. What was finished? His work. Jesus accomplished our redemption. He finished our salvation. It is completed. It is done. So anyone that trusts in the finished work of Jesus receives a status that cannot be achieved. They receive recognition that cannot be earned. They receive a promotion that cannot be worked for. They receive an identity that cannot be obtained by toiling in this world. The status of holy, righteous, worthy, beloved, treasured, delighted in this status cannot be worked for. It can only be received by grace. It's received by grace because it was already worked by another person, by Jesus himself. He worked on our behalf so that we could rest in the status that he has earned for us. This is the work that leads us to glory, beholding the finished work of Jesus. This is why Christians observe the Sabbath on Sunday. Maybe you've wondered that. Like, Jews celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday. Why do Christians celebrate on Sunday? This is it. You see, in the Old Testament, the people of God, they would work for six days and rest on the seventh because they were always looking forward to that eternal rest that was theirs. So they would work and strive and then rest. But when Jesus finished the work and when he rose from the dead, he rose on the first day of the week. And so Christians ever since have gathered together on the first day of the week, not on the last but on the first, to celebrate, to remember, to rest in the finished work of Jesus. That's how we can work for God's glory, resting in the finished work of Jesus. Like, I know Mondays are hard. I, I know Sunday nights 
are dreadful because you are just preparing for a long week ahead. Maybe you've got time with the kids or you've got a meeting first thing in the morning or you know you've got a project due at the end of the week. I know that Sunday nights are dreadful because Monday is coming. How would your Monday look different if on Sunday you rested in the truth that that work that we all long for, that identity that we are striving for is already ours in the finished work of Jesus? What would it look like to go to work on Monday not seeking an identity from your work, not working to achieve a status, but knowing that you are more loved than you could ever imagine because of Jesus. That will free you to work for the glory of God. So my challenge today, put down your work. Rest. Delight in Jesus. Sing songs to Jesus. Read God's word and remind yourself of that finished work. Take a nap. Spend time with your family. Eat a good meal with your friends. Enjoy what Jesus has accomplished for you. You are his. You don't have to work for that. He did that for you. Let's pray.